0: In spring of 2021, as Harvard's commencement approached, hundreds of Radcliffe and Harvard alumni noticed something strange in paper and digital communications from the university, and specifically from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study.
1: Starting, I would, I think, around March, April. The women
2: uh, graduates, as I know, get a mailer in the spring that tells us about the Radcliffe Day event.
1: In May uh, 2021, as the uh, commencement activities were, were coming up into view, and when fundraising solicitations quintupled, that was when people started noticing. And I began to notice this Harvard Radcliffe Institute.
0: It was an unfamiliar name for a very familiar history and institution. The Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, today a center for multidisciplinary scholarship, is one of the last institutional vestiges of the name and legacy of Radcliffe College, which was the women's college counterpart to the men only Harvard until as recently as the 1970s, and only fully merged with Harvard Several in 1999. I went
2: on the website and found that it had already been rebranded as the Harvard-Radcliffe Institute.
1: Harvard-Radcliffe Institute? What is that? I began what seeing the
2: Harvard-Radcliffe Institute, and I thought, oh boy, here they go again. We're watching the, 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 the gradual, or
3: not-so-gradual, disappearance of Radcliffe.
0: You're listening to The Annex, a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Harvard Crimson's magazine, exploring why, so often, The histories of higher education appear womanless, and those of Harvard quote-unquote Radcliffe-less. I'm your host, Mateo Wong. Rebranding the institute to be the quote-unquote Harvard Radcliffe Institute has sparked the opposition of hundreds of alums across over 40 years of graduating classes who have written dozens of letters to Radcliffe administrators, largely because this change to center the Harvard name and identity strikes many as the latest step in a centuries-long trend of subduing or erasing Radcliffe and women from Harvard and its history. A letter from the class of 1981, with over 250 signatories, states that the renaming quote, willfully subordinates Radcliffe and its identity to Harvard. For many, this act opens larger issues whose importance transcends that of a trivial choice of moniker, end quote. And so in turn, the hundreds of alums denouncing the rebranding have themselves become the latest iteration in that history of centuries of women's struggles at, for, and against the men-dominated Harvard. Here's Susan Smart. Class Secretary of 1971, this year's 50th reunion, who helped catalyze the network of Radcliffe and Harvard alums against the renaming.
2: And that was alarming, because the Radcliffe Institute uh, means so much to a broad swath of alumni from the 1950s to the 2000s. And to us, it, it served as and continues to serve in our minds as the last recognition of the great contributions of Radcliffe College to the uh, higher education of
0: women." This controversy forces us to re-examine those contributions, the history and struggles of women at Harvard and in higher education, and then to ask, what is a Harvard education? Who is it for? Should it be differentiated? How have the answers evolved? Radcliffe College, the women's college at Harvard, was founded in the late 19th century in an attempt to offer women an excellent undergraduate education in face of systemic sexism and against the wishes of many in Harvard's leadership at the time. Meanwhile, The Radcliffe Institute was founded under the leadership of Radcliffe College in 1960 with a related goal to support women's professional and academic interests that they otherwise, often due to sexist social attitudes and barriers, could not pursue. Here is Smart's classmate of 1971, Nancy Stieber, a professor of architectural history who was a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute in 2000 and is a leading voice among the petitioners.
1: So to see Harvard Radcliffe. Institute, my first reaction was, oh my goodness, I mean, how can Harvard claim that it, I mean, yes, th- th- we know that the funding was enhanced by Harvard, and we know that the Radcliffe Institute is lodged at Harvard, but in no way is the Institute a Harvard Radcliffe Institute. It's a Radcliffe Institute. It's a successor to Radcliffe College. Now, since then, um, I'm still, I'm still, I still react with a kind of a, a shock every time I see, I mean, I think it was just yesterday when I went on to the Schlesinger Library archives and I saw them, they had, because they're a part of the Harvard Radcliffe, oh now I'm saying it <laughs> dear, I saw so Harvard Radcliffe Institute again felt, oh my God, what are they doing? But, you know, the Schlesinger, for goodness sakes, is preeminent, the preeminent repository for women's history now has this ridiculous naming.
0: Today's Radcliffe or Harvard Radcliffe Institute does not only support women scholars or scholarship about women, gender, and society. And Radcliffe College no longer exists. Since the 60s and 70s, it has slowly merged with Harvard, and in 1999, the merger was completed. That process, in theory, made Harvard equally open to all genders. The rebranding itself could be seen as the next step in that merger of giving Radcliffe equal status. The Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study provides a rationale for the rebrand on its website, which Institute Director of Communications Jane Huber elaborated on in an email. And that's that the name Radcliffe Institute alone led to people dismissing Radcliffe's history, or just calling it a Harvard Institute, while the new Harvard Radcliffe name promotes awareness of Radcliffe and its core relationship to the university, thus fully bringing Radcliffe into the Harvard family. From the Institute's website, quote, A central goal of our recent brand refresh is to proudly embrace our deep and enduring ties to Radcliffe College, end quote. But many alumni refer to the Harvard-Radcliffe merger that began in the 70s and ended in 99 as a submerging or erasure of Radcliffe, one that denied its proud legacy and ignored ongoing systemic gender discrimination, a process which the Institute's recent renaming, they allege, furthers, or at least echoes.
2: More is there than simply a name change. The identity of Radcliffe is being so submerged as to become virtually invisible now.
0: If both the Institute and hundreds of Radcliffe alumni both claim to be trying to preserve Radcliffe's legacy, then they might understand that legacy differently. As women's submissions to academic journals plummeted during the pandemic, and the nation deals with persistent gender pay gaps, by some counts even more sharply among Ivy League grads. And as Harvard itself deals with repeated Title IX investigations, the history of Radcliffe College, perhaps more than ever, needs recalling. The
2: women who are earning a fraction of what male counterparts receive today can tell you that there's a real need for the Radcliffe Institute's historic mission. The women who are out of the workforce now, because we have such an appallingly patchwork childcare
0: system, This podcast will examine parts of the history of Radcliffe women and gender at Harvard, and crucially, how that history is told or erased. At a time when much of the nation, this university included, is undergoing historical reckoning, with slavery and colonialism tearing down monuments and upending leadership, it is crucial to ask, who writes Harvard's history, and the history of higher education, and how? Who is left out? And why should we care? In this first episode, I'll trace some of the origins of women's education at Harvard in the 19th century and place them in conversation with contemporary context and controversy over the Radcliffe Institute, trying to understand how and why Harvard's history is so often written in a womanless way. Here's Smart again.
2: It takes us back to 1879 when a small group of women were given a Harvard education for the first time. The name Radcliffe College wasn't going to be chartered for a few more years. And what they called this entity was the Harvard Annex. But what is an annex but an appendage? an addition, a subordinate. And so what are we saying to young women now? That we have to have the name Harvard for prestige and recognition. And are we now, again, an appendage within Harvard Radcliffe Institute?
0: Today, the most immediately accessible official version of Harvard's history, what an admitted student or potential donor might read, is found on the About page on Harvard's website by clicking on the words Harvard History there they would scroll along a timeline stretching from Harvard's origins in 1636 to the present day learning about founding figures like John Harvard and Henry Dunster revolutionary heroes like John Adams US and university presidents alike Nobel prize winning scientists and famous artists notably they are almost exclusively men to be more precise the timeline names roughly 60 men but only 6 women three are firsts Helen Keller, the first woman to receive a Harvard honorary degree. That Keller graduated from Radcliffe in 1904 is not mentioned. Helen Gilbert, the first woman elected to the Board of Overseers. Andrew Faust, the university's first and only female president. Two others are Mary Bunting, who established the Radcliffe Institute in 1960, and Mary Fasano, the oldest person to get a Harvard degree. The last, whom I almost missed, is the tomb of an Egyptian princess that was part of a major Harvard archaeological discovery in 1924. There are also four mentions of Radcliffe College and its merging with Harvard, for a grand total of 10 points on this timeline in the 385-year history that mentioned women or women's education. That admitted student might then come to visit us, eating their first meal at Harvard under the vaulted ceilings and chandeliers of Annenberg, a 9,000-square-foot hall that can seat over 600 at custom-made tables and chairs. Lining the walls are busts and statues and carvings and portraits of important figures with some connection to Harvard. Among dozens of images of dead white Harvard alumni and faculty, there are three black men, one American Indian man, and exactly zero women. It was over 20 years ago, in 1997, when Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, now a professor emeritus at Harvard and a Pulitzer Prize winner, attended a ceremony for the finished renovation of the Barker Center and noticed that, not only were there no portraits of women, but that the booklet distributed to attendees on the history of the humanities at Harvard did not mention a single woman except for Elizabeth Barker who helped fund the renovation. That ceremony led Ulrich to write an essay in 1999 titled Harvard's Womanless History, in which she describes and critiques how women had not been fully integrated into Harvard life or Harvard's history. Ulrich wrote, quote, the real problem was not missing artifacts, but a curiously constricted sense of what belonged to Harvard's past. In the weeks that followed, I found the same narrow vision everywhere I turned." End quote. Two decades later, that same narrow vision of a womanless history seems to many to persist. In the current controversy over the renaming of the Radcliffe Institute that this episode opened with, many alumni who opposed the renaming see putting the Harvard name first as evidence of this narrow vision of Harvard. Here's Nancy Stever again class of
1: 1971. It is uh, negating the history. You know, the very proud history of Radcliffe's role in women's education and women's scholarship. I don't think we have to go into, I think you have other means to go into the ways in which women were second class citizens at Harvard for a long time, even with the existence of Radcliffe College. You know, mine was the very first class that was allowed to go to Lamont. I don't think we knew that. Oftentimes undergraduates, quite understandably, are not aware of what's happened previously. So we just took it for granted that we had access to Lamont. I didn't find out until this period that women had been denied access to Lamont. Like
0: Stieber, I had no idea about the exclusion of women at Lamont before this reporting. Another piece of unflattering Harvard history that, if not sought out, risks being lost. Some might contend that, because no woman attended Harvard or served on its faculty for centuries, the history simply is womanless. Now that's wrong. For instance, the first endowed scholarship at Harvard, meaning its first form of financial aid, was funded by Anne Radcliffe in 1643. And moreover, the case of women's exclusion from Lamont shows that the absence is precisely what makes gender central to the university's history. Defining who a Harvard education was for required defining for whom it was not. Where were these women? When they protested for access to Lamont, what were they asking for? As Ulrich wrote in her essay, gender signifies and creates power dynamics, so it is, quote, present even when women are not, perhaps especially so, end quote. The womanless gap in many tellings of Harvard's history needs filling. So before diving into the controversy over Radcliffe's legacy and the Radcliffe Institute, Before interrogating the power and stakes of writing the histories of women in Radcliffe and Harvard, it's important to understand that history itself, how women have contributed to, while being excluded from, the university. I'm going to jump back to the 19th century to examine Radcliffe's origins, which were the result of decades of women's advocacy that resonate with debates over the Radcliffe Institute today. What exactly is the history and legacy of Radcliffe College that hundreds are fighting to preserve in the present?
4: My name is Sally Schwager, and I taught uh, women's educational history and other courses in the history of higher education um, at Harvard, at the Graduate School of Education for, well, I don't know, for about 15, 20 years. Schwager um, was I a graduate was
0: student a graduate at Harvard student in the 70s, has done extensive research on Radcliffe College's origins.
4: When I was looking for a dissertation topic for my doctorate, I discovered that really very little had been written about the history of Radcliffe. And this intrigued me and angered me and <laughs> and um, actually made my challenge, had presented a lot of challenges. Confronted
0: with the gap in Harvard's that. history, she decided to fill it yeah. and wrote her dissertation in part on Radcliffe's origin story. Of course, the history of women, gender in Harvard dates back much further. Each part of the university's timeline, all rich wrote, could be modified to reveal exclusions and omissions, often of women, such as how the ministers who founded Harvard banished the preacher and Hutchinson who opposed their leadership. But that history would require several tomes, so this podcast will have an abridged focus on Radcliffe, a winding story Schwager walked me through the early stages of.
4: In the 1850s, we see very directly the movement um, and advocacy of women um, to the Harvard administration to allow teachers from the Boston area to attend lectures at Harvard. But the corporation, the Harvard Corporation, denied the petition of these school teachers on, on multiple grounds, most especially that study at Harvard was not appropriate for for women.
0: But women continued to advocate for a Harvard education and show it was quite appropriate for them to have a
4: lecture series. And it was open to men and to women. And it was open, it mostly was attended by men who were not Harvard College students.
0: For instance, in the 1860s, um, Harvard began places, a series of public lectures, uh, likely intended for non-Harvard men.
4: And other people in the public. But it turned out you know, who was most eager to attend these lectures, it was women. And so women kind of flooded these university lectures, which ultimately led Eliot to um, declare them an abject failure. <laughs> because
0: <laughs> Charles William education. Eliot assumed the Harvard presidency Everybody. in 1869, and by Everybody 1872 ended the open lectures. Has to
4: raise the scientific educational level of men in Boston, not these women. Eliot's teachers.
0: goal as president was to turn Harvard into a respected research university to rival those of Europe. And enhance its graduate studies, which he was largely successful in. But
4: the graduate department was certainly not going to welcome the female public or high school teachers or other unmatriculated students, women or men. Elliot's ambitious plans for Harvard to build a scholarly university of national, international scope to develop the graduate program um, that serves actually to diminish opportunities for women that had existed before.
0: Even in this prehistory of Radcliffe, before serious discussions about establishing a women's college, two forces were evident. One is- one
4: thing that we can kind of take away from this now almost ancient history is that advocacy for women's education as we saw it play out at Harvard and Radcliffe was really a collective action on the part of women. Mm -hmm. These were, I showed you that long list of names, these were groups of women who supported one another and were supporting the idea of helping the next generation. But as
0: much as there is to be said for the advocacy and the resources and opportunities And and community that Radcliffe would provide women, for Schwager the crux of this history is power. The corporation, composed of Harvard men, had the power to tell women no, again and again to establish women's education on their own terms.
4: I think it's important to consider across this whole history, and most especially at this moment in 1894, when Radcliffe College is chartered, to really consider the power differential between Radcliffe and Hartley, the power differential between women and men. So
0: the decades-long lead-up to the founding of Radcliffe in 1894 is not so simple as a group of dedicated women unsettling that power dynamic one in which Harvard's prestige, resources, and faculty were intended for men.
4: My reading of the history is that the compromise that was Radcliffe, it was not a Harvard degree, it was not not admission to Harvard College, that it institutionalized this power differential. Where were the resources to support and sustain women's scholarship? Um, And really, What does this compromise that was Ratcliffe kind of say about long-held inequalities um, and belief systems about men and women, uh, even in terms of women's right to the most advanced, most prestigious higher education? Um, What are the purposes? For which women should be educated.
0: Consider President Eliot declaring the open lectures a failure because the audience was mostly made of women scientists and most of them became science teachers because there were no opportunities for them to do serious research. He not only had the power to cancel these lectures, but in his view, women's presence jeopardized the intellectual prestige he was trying to build up through Harvard's graduate research, which then begs an answer to Schwager's last question. What were the purposes for which women should be educated? This was a time when coeducational colleges were being built in the West and women's colleges like Vassar were opening in the East, but the motivations were not simply proto-feminist. There was a political bend, a concept Schwager calls.
4: The Republican mother, Republican meaning the new early democratic republic, the experiment of the United States. Although women were not considered citizens with direct political rights in the governance of the new nation a political ideology emerged that American women, and I'm using the word American to mean women in the new United States, had a unique political role, and here's the point, as the educators of sons.
0: (laughs) So women (laughs) were to be educated for the sake of their sons, who were considered citizens. Under the concept of Republican motherhood, a Harvard education, certainly in the sense of elite graduate research that Eliot envisioned, was not appropriate, and certainly not needed, for a woman.
4: The purpose of women's education was to make them better mothers and wives and daughters and teachers to promote the American democratic experiment.
0: The next iteration in the struggle for women's education at Harvard involved.
4: The Women's Education Association, which began with a series of conversations and meetings in Boston about how to procure Harvard degrees for women. Experienced all kinds of sendbacks. The
0: WEA yeah. was founded in yeah. 1872 by a group of women who lamented, quote, the great and crying want, which each woman felt in her own life, she knew existed for all women, of more and better, wider and higher education. Among the founders were Zena Faye Pierce, Otis Elliott, Elizabeth Carey Agassiz. The WEA would expand to a two column list many pages long, which Schwager showed me, and many of the names sounded familiar of present day buildings, dorms, and auditoriums.
4: Many had been teachers. Most had had the privilege of fairly advanced educations, private educations, in their you know intellectual homes. Um, so they were uh, you know a certain social group in Boston for the most part, and most of them were married women. Uh, but for the many of the unmarried women teachers, so just to give a sense of the depth. And um, I suspect that every Harvard professor had some woman in his family who was involved with this enterprise. I mean, if we want to go back to the kind of domestic parallels, um, it it was kind of a family affair in many ways. And that's part of the reason I called my dissertation Harvard Women in quotes, that these were the women who were the, the daughters and the wives and the sisters of Harvard College men.
0: Their struggle for rights and access then was mostly limited to higher class white women. These quote-unquote Harvard Women's next step was to try and have Harvard offer its entrance exams to women.
4: The Women's Education Association was hoping that that would allow women to get Harvard degrees. If they didn't step foot on the campus, but they passed the same, Uh, entrance examinations, and they took courses with Harvard professors, could they then have a Harvard degree? And the corporation in 1872 said no, that residence in Harvard College is required for the degree, and that the university, quote, does not propose to give its degree to women. So then, uh, compromise number one...
0: The resulting compromise two years later was to offer exams similar to Harvard's to women. women, which in theory would help raise the standard of girls' education nationwide.
4: But leadership at Harvard had to make certain that these examinations were different from the Harvard examinations. Again, they didn't want any sort of risk that a woman would say she had passed the Harvard entrance examinations. Moreover, you know, her parents might demand she get a degree or be <laughs> admitted to the university. So the examinations had to be different, and this comes back to these questions of differentials that I talked about earlier, and the university insisted that Harvard not spend any money on this, that it all had to be funded by the WEA, and that the university's only function would be in helping to prepare the examination questions.
0: The Harvard exams were ultimately a failure, and even seen as an inferior option as actual women's colleges were being established on the East Coast. One of the WEA's founding members, Zena Faye Pierce, was so angry about what she saw as a terrible compromise that she resigned. But the WEA and Carrie Agassiz continued with their strategy of staying on amicable terms with Harvard and trying to get concessions. They
4: launched yet another program, and that is what eventually, uh, over the and this was in 1879, and over the next four or five years, it became what we think of as the so-called Harvard Annex. It was a program of private study, private instruction for women by Harvard faculty. Um, Again, it was funded entirely by the Women's Education Association and other women who put their financial resources into this project. Um, It was voluntary on the part of Harvard faculty. Um, There was this cadre, there was a cadre of men at Harvard who since, remember, we go back all the way to the 1830s, but certainly in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, wanted to contribute in some way to the improved education of women at Harvard. And so they were very active.
0: The hope was that the Annex would eventually lead to the same education for men and women. But the Annex faced numerous challenges, including financial woes, not having stable faculty, and some professors not taking the education of women as seriously as that of men or the annex certificate not being the same as a Harvard degree, and limited resources for students. Agassiz proposed that Harvard take over the annex, but Elliot said no. Thinking the problem was financial, the WA tried to raise money and proposed that Harvard take over the annex and its endowment, but again the corporation refused. Eliot's stance, Swagger says, was clear. He
4: did not believe that society had in any way demonstrated that women had intellectual capacity to do university level work. He argued that it would take generations of experimentation before the world would know whether women had the capacity to be academic scholars and that Harvard was not prepared to undertake that experiment. So let it be proved elsewhere But it will take generations before we know, and we're not going to be part of it.
0: Yet there was lots of support among Harvard leadership in educating women, the future Republican mothers, even more so as many members of the WA were Harvard women.
4: There were certainly immediate benefits because as long as they were educating the daughters and the wives and the sisters um, and the teachers of Harvard's community, um, that was wonderful.
0: And also there was fear of immigrant social disruption.
4: Even in the 1890s, there was tremendous concern about immigrant women and the daughters of immigrant women and this tremendous social disruption. So it might have been trying to preserve Yankee womanhood. I, that's kind of a mm-hmm. exaggeration. But I think there also was a genuine concern about improving, especially Uh, education for teachers and improving the schools for boys and for girls. And it all went back to this question of education for democracy.
0: So here's what the Harvard Corporation proposed instead in 1893, which Schroger calls the Radcliffe Compromise.
4: This was the plan that the annex would become X college, which would be self-governing in all respects, and that Harvard would have no financial responsibility for it. Um, And at that point, the Annex, under the leadership of Elizabeth Carey Agassiz, voted to accept that corporation proposal.
0: The Annex became Radcliffe College, chartered in 1894. But many members of the WEA and Annex alumni criticized the deal. It seemed to them like a deal to keep women out more so than to let women in. Women's education was permitted so long as there was absolutely zero cost to Harvard or its men-only sphere. Only so long as the purpose of women's education is different, Lesser, being toward motherhood and teaching, was institutionally cemented.
4: And Radcliffe certainly represented progress. Um, There was a sense of women, and I think this is so important, women advocating for women, women fundraising for women's education, women um, supporting, and there was tremendous support Annex and at Radcliffe in the early years. For women students, there was the development of what we might now think of as a kind of women's culture with everything from uh, extracurricular programs to to debate, you know, intellectual and and uh, other societies. Um, But, but, the bottom line is Radcliffe had no faculty. Radcliffe had, at least in those early years, no women scholars in residence. Radcliffe had no power in relationship to Harvard.
0: It would be simple to tell this story through binaries. Women against men, Radcliffe against Harvard. It would also be wrong. Working class women, Black women, Jewish women, even Southern women, all face barriers to getting into and discrimination and prejudice at Radcliffe College.
3: Mary uh, Gibson, that I write about in this article that I did on the history of Black women in 17th colleges, was the first person to come from the South. Well, she's from D.C., which considered the South. And she was also from a black, high, a very renowned class of black high school. So she came to Radcliffe, and then there was the issue of housing. I mean, which she couldn't live on campus, because she was in the class of 18.
0: That's Radcliffe um, class of 1918. That was the voice of. Linda
3: Perkins, and I'm associate university professor and the director of applied gender studies at Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California.
0: Perkins researches the history of African American women's higher education, and is written about black women at the Seven District Colleges, which were a group of prestigious women's colleges on the East Coast that included Radcliffe. Perkins' research went up into the nineteen sixties before special efforts to recruit black students.
3: But the thing about Gibson, she came from a very renowned family, I mean, who had, you know, a highly distinguished family.
0: The first black student at Radcliffe graduated in eighteen ninety eight, but Mary Gibson, class of nineteen eighteen, Was the first to come from the South, or at least DC. Excluded from the dorms, her mother moved with her to Cambridge to set up an apartment. But another problem they faced was financial.
3: The problem was her father was a lawyer, he died, and so they had no money. And so it was like the term they used to use in that day, a reversal of fortunes. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reasons, I guess there were no assets.
0: Gibson and her mother hoped she would get a scholarship as she was an outstanding student and had a recommendation from the superintendent of Washington, D.C. Public Schools, who was also a friend of Radcliffe President LeBaron Russell Briggs. But another administrator prevented this.
3: Mary Gibson did run into this racist uh, dean at Radcliffe who refused to give her a scholarship. You know, And I assumed that she thought that Gibson was very uppity or didn't, you know, didn't carry herself in a way that was deferential. For a black person.
0: Instead, that dean offered Gibson
3: a job to be a domestic. And that was like a slap in the face and an insult. You know, and the fact that she didn't take that job, her mother said no. Uh, They felt like, you know, she thinks she's above other people. You know, it's not like they offered her you can work in the library. It wasn't like she was saying, I don't want to work. You know, you can find me something else, which they didn't do.
0: President Briggs was conflicted over this issue. In a letter, he admitted that he had denied Gibson her scholarship her second year so that Gibson wouldn't return. But later, he had a change of heart and helped Gibson find a loan, which she would pay off in full. And Mary Gibson went on to lead a full life at Radcliffe, joining student government and writing the class song of 1918.
3: Mary Gibson, she was a lifelong devoted Radcliffe alum. She returned to reunions, she contributed money, she left them in her will, you know. Even though she couldn't live on campus, they never gave her a penny.
0: Black women in the early years of Radcliffe, Perkins told me, accepted living off campus and other indignities as almost an inevitability.
3: One of the alums was saying they knew what the value of that degree. So not living on campus was something that they were willing to accept. But they have friends and they were involved in various things. So at the end of the day, you know, they accomplished a lot.
0: This limited glimpse into Gibson's life and the restrictions and accomplishments of black women at Radcliffe speaks to the complex nature of Radcliffe College's legacy that Schwager, too, pointed out. It was at once a place of growth and opportunity, but also one of struggle, facing external and filled with internal systemic barriers and inequalities. But where are these complexities in Harvard's and Radcliffe's official histories? Returning to the present-day controversy over preserving Radcliffe's identity and legacy, why does this early history matter?
4: Another way to phrase that would be, why do we care about the history of white women at Radcliffe? It's a question I ask myself a lot. First, I would certainly hope it would not be the exclusive (laughs) question that one asks.
0: Of course, this is not only a history of white women, as Perkins and others have painstakingly shown. But yes, the origin story and early years of Radcliffe College are primarily about white women who made up the WEA. Over a century later, Harvard has been co-ed in some form for decades. Harvard does not, at least in policy, differentiate based on gender, as struggles over exclusion and discrimination do not center around more affluent white women. Still.
4: This is really a question about institutional identity.
0: The struggles of mostly white women to enter Harvard and of black women to enter Radcliffe force us to ask for what purpose and for who is a Harvard education intended?
4: who deserves to be educated and for what purposes? And history
0: yeah. informs how we answer that question. For instance, this origin story, as told on the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies website, is a bit different from what Schwager told me, and gives no mention to the struggles of women of color that Perkins and others have written about. The website is almost triumphant, stating, quote, In 1894, it was chartered as Radcliffe College, with Carrie Agassiz as his first president. From the beginning... Degrees were countersigned by the Harvard president to attest that they were, in Elliot's words and despite his reservations, equivalent in all respects to the degrees given to the graduates of Harvard College, end quote. In Harvard's self-told official narrative, there was no compromise. The WEA got their goal, Harvard education and degrees for women. Schwager, of course, reads the history otherwise.
4: Why is it a compromise? Because most, at its essence, it's, it was a compromise because it did not provide women with instruction that was equal to that in Harvard College. Um, It did not, Radcliffe women did not receive a Harvard degree and both of those features were what the women advocates of the 1870s had wanted. Um, It had no guaranteed financial uh, security. So, That differentiated from Harvard. Um, And moreover, Radcliffe did not have its own faculty, but rather it was dependent, and you've read about this, I know, sort of a subset of Harvard faculty who agreed to repeat their lectures at Radcliffe.
0: If one tells the history of Radcliffe primarily as a celebration of the achievements of women in higher education and as an institution that, for a long time, has had near full access to Harvard's resources and prestige, then the rebranding makes total sense. The name Harvard Radcliffe Institute is the logical culmination of equal education for all genders, races, and other identity categories, and are bringing Radcliffe to the center of the university. Such a telling emphasizes the theme of collective advocacy for equal rights that Schwager pointed to in the WEA's work in fighting for Radcliffe, the work of women and other marginalized people coming together to demand a stake in the university. As Radcliffe Institute Dean Tomiko Brown Nagin wrote in her message about the rebranding, Quote, the legacy of Radcliffe College is not simply co-education at Harvard, it is the recognition that universities will always be greater when they draw wisdom and talent from the widest possible pool." End quote. But if you see Radcliffe's origins through the other theme Schwager focuses on, as a compromise that cemented a power imbalance with Harvard, then the rebranding might seem like a perpetuation of the imbalance that at the 1890s left Radcliffe College with no structural authority and limited resources. As Smart said,
2: What is an annex but an appendage, an addition, a subordinate?
0: De-emphasizing the Radcliffe name in the Harvard-Radcliffe Institute rebrand might seem to locate prestige and power, similar to what Schwager pointed out in the 19th century in the Harvard name and its legacy of great men, as featured on the university website's official timeline. And so histories can reinforce, even if unintentionally, who wields power and prestige turning Ulrich's analysis of Harvard's womanless history into a feedback loop. As Schwager explained it to me.
4: The historiography is that people in power write history.
0: So from the 1800s all the way to the present.
4: Harvard College has a, ha, had, uh, even by the turn of the century, a veritable industry of people collecting data. The alumni were the Presidents, surveyed, distinguished alumni,
0: historians, you know, and so right. on. Writing about Harvard and Harvard men. Reports
4: in the press internationally were were collecting this. So there's just this vast wealth of information about Harvard that Radcliffe, who did not have that same industrial might, um, was unable to collect. In Schwager's
0: explanation, exclusion from the writing of history results from exclusions during the unfolding of history. Men, often men in power, collect information, write timelines or commission portraits centered around themselves. And meanwhile, there's no infrastructure to support an industry of Radcliffe histories. That's not a conspiracy per se, but as Ulrich wrote in her essay on Harvard's womanless history, quote, just collective complacency and an ignorance compounded by separatism. Writers and publishers at Harvard have never considered Radcliffe their responsibility. Radcliffe has been too busy negotiating its own status to promote its history, End quote.
4: As a little experiment... <laughs> I went through my files last night and I found, um, I found a Time Magazine article that was published. It had the picture of Derek Bach on the front. It was published at the 350th anniversary of Harvard. And I thought, oh, this is sort of interesting. We'll take a look at it. And I flipped through it, albeit very quickly, not one word about women. So It's not only within Harvard, it's the public perceptions and the public reporting. And what do we celebrate at Harvard's 350th? Well, a lot, but we certainly are not celebrating its various efforts or um, its educational efforts to uh, promote women's education.
0: This process is not unique to Harvard, nor is it unique to history being womanless, as Perkins told me.
3: When I finished my dissertation, I went on this job interview, literally, and I was talking about my research on Black women. And this guy, this professor in the audience basically said, Who would be interested in this?
0: She's not talking specifically about Harvard, but centuries of the university's mostly white, men dominated history you know, suggests I was she could. about have
3: Black been. women in the academy, Black women who gone to these schools. Like, he's not interested in that. Well, you may not be interested in it, but it's a part of our history. You know, and it's part of institutional history. Um, So they just pick and choose what's important and what's not important. And what's important is basically cis white men, right? Period.
0: Which is not to say the histories are lost.
3: I think more and more people have definitely challenged that notion because we go to the archives and we interview people and we have the data, you know, and it's not like we're just talking out of, you know, uh, making things up you know that's why I just quote
0: people. Linda Perkins and her research Sally Schwager for her dissertation and countless others have added to and challenged the limits of Harvard's archive and story.
3: And also I was looking at southern white women which is kind of interesting they have their own group too because people had stereotypes about them too that they just these frivolous southern belles who just interested in social stuff, debutantes and that kind of stuff. So they had their affinity group, too, back in the day, you know, which is kind of interesting. And people always look at, oh, it's just Black people. No, it was a whole lot of people who were not a part of the stereotypical uh, white establishment.
0: There's an entire book of essays trying to write women back into Harvard history, in which Schwager has a chapter. The collection is titled Yards and Gates and was edited by Professor Laurel Ulrich, who wrote the essay, Harvard's Woman's History, that I've been quoting throughout. Here's Stieber again.
1: The pioneering work that was done way back with the Harvard Annex needs to be recognized and remembered proudly. You know, front, right, and center uh, in, in Harvard's history. Um, gosh, if Harvard wants to take credit for the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, why not have it take credit for, you know, and really examine and embrace the... Um, the history of these women trying to get in. It, it, took, it took the Second World War to get women into the classrooms with men. Mm-hmm.
0: And so in the next episode of the Annex, we'll try and do what Steiber proposes, to really examine the history of women trying to get into Harvard and of Radcliffe supporting women's scholarship, an examination of the years and movements leading up to the famous non-merger merger in the 1970s and its consequences. Did Radcliffe students really become co-equals with their Harvard counterparts, or is Radcliffe submerged into a space institution? Dominated by men.
4: You know, we sort of have this historical amnesia. So the question is really, how do we preserve and celebrate our history? You know, how are we going to do it? Who's going to fund it? Who's going to do it? Um, and a kind of corollary to that is, how do we deepen our understanding of higher education, which, like all social institutions, is highly gendered? How are we going to ask new and different questions about these institutions? Um, and about the people who built them.
0: The Annex is a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Crimson's weekly magazine. It is reported, written, hosted, and produced by a very sick-sounding me, Mateo Wong. Huge thank you to Olivia Oldham and James Baikalis for editing, and to the amazing Ian Chan for music.